Uh, okay, so you've had a reminder of our regular Christmas movie, um, um, Elf, but one movie that I can almost guarantee that will be on in some form uh, over the seasonal period is uh, Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. Uh, you all know the story, the story of, of Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge, that miserly businessman without an ounce of uh, compassion or sympathy or kindness. Uh, and on one Christmas, he has a, a visit from uh, the ghost of his departed former business partner, partner uh, Jacob Marley, who warns him to mend his ways or he'll end up in the predicament that uh, Mr. Marley is in, uh, and tells him that there's going to be three ghosts that come to visit him that night, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, the ghost of Christmas future. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. He gets uh, a visit from these three ghosts and is, ghosts and is given a vision of uh, Christmas past, when things were more innocent, where there was great happiness, where there was wonderful potential. Uh, He's given a vision of the plight that those are in uh, right in the present um, around him. Uh, And then thirdly, he gets uh, a glimpse of the future. He gets to glimpse his unlamented grave and sees uh, horrifically the consequences, the dire consequences of his heartless behavior uh, on others around him. And he's so shocked by what he sees, he has this dramatic change of heart. If you remember any version of the movie, my favorite version is obviously the Muppet Christmas Carol, but uh, where the, 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 the windows are open the next day and he shouts out Merry Christmas, a changed man. Uh, he acts now with great kindness towards those around him, uh, utterly changed, and actually over time becomes known to be uh, a man of great uh, generosity and a man who embodies the spirit of Christmas. It's a wonderful, heartwarming tale uh, every time we watch it. But I think if we're being truly honest, there's, all a, there's a bit of a cynic in each one of us that says, if only it was that easy to change. I think we'd all long to change, wouldn't we, if we're all being honest? We'd all long to be better people in some way. We'd love to be more patient, more self-disciplined, uh, more diligent in our work to have a tighter control uh, over our tongue, I think we'd all like to be uh, less lustful or lazy, more generous and content. I think we'd all like to be better people. And I I would would hazard a guess that whatever your religious conviction here tonight, I think we'd all like to be better. Uh, But how does that change happen? Well, if you go into Easton's or Waterstone's, uh, there will always be, or there for the tape, there are other book selling shops out there that are very good. But if you go into any of those bookshops, you will find an increasingly large section of those self-help guides. Here's a bewildering array of things that you should do to change your life, that you could become that better person. Um, And I think that sense of longing to be better, longing for real change in my life... um, it's not just an experience that we have, but it's actually a very old experience. It was the, was the experience of these Christians in Colossae. They, like us, had habits that they were finding were hard to break. They were having the same old temptations that they were tripping up in. They experienced being tripped up by their own selfish desires. They experienced real spiritual frustration 
Uh, and it's into that context then that these false teachers had infiltrated their church and were offering a, a, a shortcut to freedom and maturity. If you do what we do, uh, you can become the people you want to be. Um, you can have, if you follow our 12-step plan, uh, if you obey our rules, if you just deny yourself these things, uh, if you do these spiritual rituals and have these spiritual experiences, you can become better, mature, more satisfied, more content, more rounded Christians. You've made a wonderful start. It's great you've trusted Jesus. That's a brilliant start. But if you're going to be a really changed person, you need more than Jesus. That's effectively what they were saying. But here's Paul's verdict on what they were suggesting. And it's just in the verse before our little passage uh, tonight. Uh, Here is Paul's verdict, chapter 2, verse 23. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. Problem, none of what they're suggesting actually works. It doesn't work. See, Paul is well aware that the human heart is so deceptive and so sinful that actually it's going to take way more than any self-help tips and a few rules and self-discipline to bring any real change. And so the question that we're left hanging with at the end of last week is, well, that's wonderful that we have Jesus, but surely it must be possible to change. It must be possible to change. And the wonderful answer uh, that Paul has in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 3 is that through Jesus, real change, real, effective, lasting character change is possible. Yes, with self-help guides, lots of small changes are possible, but Paul is saying that a change to your character is possible. A change to your heart is possible, and it's possible through Jesus. Not only is Jesus the one who can save you from God's judgment, But Paul is saying wonderfully, Jesus is the one who can really change you. He can really change you. How then does that happen? Well, according to Paul, he has two steps. If we're to experience real change, if we're to see old habits broken, if we're to see temptations resisted, uh, we're to follow Paul's two steps, which I hope, if you're anything like me and want to be changed, then you'll be interested in finding out. Here are the two of them. First, understand your new identity and then practice your new lifestyle. Understand your new identity and then practice your new lifestyle. First then, understand your new identity. If we think of personal identity, Uh, Often we think of then the set of characteristics that make you, you, and make me, me. Okay, so your physical appearance, your your job possibly, um, your accent, uh, your attitudes to certain things, your hobbies, uh, your interests. 
Um, add them all together, and that's your personal identity. Well, Paul would say there is an essential, if you're a Christian, there is an essential thing that marks out you, that defines you more than any of those other things. And according to Paul, which we, we touched on last week, it's the idea that if you're a Christian, the fundamental thing that makes you you is that you are united to Christ. You're united to Christ. Paul uses that language of being in Christ, with Christ. And I tried to give you an illustration of, and again, it's not perfect, uh, I tried to give you an illustration of something to do that, that expresses that intimacy, that sharing uh, that we have with the Lord Jesus once we are united to him by faith. I used last week the illustration of a pregnant mother and the baby in her womb. Uh, where she goes, baby goes. What she does, in a sense, baby also does. Her experience becomes baby's experience. I'm going to give you, try and give you another one uh, this evening. Again, this is not perfect. This is not perfect. Uh, but it expresses something of the, the idea. I don't know if any of you uh, here this evening have had a go at the tandem skydive. Anyone had a go at the tandem skydive? We had, a couple, we had, we had two this morning as well. Uh, action men again this evening. Now, the closest I've got is a tandem bungee jump, uh, but the tandem skydive. Uh, the tandem skydive is that you're the novice, usually you're the novice, and you are then uh, literally hitched to an expert who's done it lots of times, who knows what they're doing, and then as the expert jumps out of the plane, then novice jumps out of the plane. As expert falls, novice falls. As hopefully uh, expert reaches for the, the ripcord and pulls and the parachute comes up and expert floats, novice floats. And again, hopefully as expert lands safely, novice lands safely. The experience of the expert becomes the experience of of the novice, because they're connected, they're connected together. Uh, and that is the, the, the language and the idea that Paul is using to describe what it means to be a Christian, what defines you and me if we've put our faith uh, in the Lord Jesus. We are united to Christ. We are united to Christ. And through our faith in him, what is true for him becomes true for us. We get to share in his benefits. We get to share in his privileges. We get to share in his life. We get to share in his destiny because we are united to him by faith. And Paul then in these first four verses unpacks three differences that makes for you if you are united to Christ. It, it radically changes your past and your present and your future if you're united to Christ. Uh, what is our identity? Well, the Christian's past. Just look at verse 3. For you died. For you died. Now, what does Paul mean there? Now, I'm assuming that Paul is writing to a church where not everyone has had a near-death physical experience, where they've had to be resuscitated from the very brink of death. So if that's not the case, then what does it mean when Paul writes to Christians who have a pulse and are breathing, what, what does it mean to say, you died, you died? Well, the idea really is that, uh, as we looked at last week, 
2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross to pay the penalty for sinners. And before you put your trust in Christ, those events that really happened all those years ago are of no benefit to you. They're of no benefit to you. But the moment you put your trust in Christ and you admit your failure and your need for a saviour and you commit to him as your Lord and King, when you do that, you are united to Christ by faith. And the death sentence that you deserve and I deserve for all the ways that we've lived in God's world as if he doesn't matter and isn't there, all the ways we've used and abused other people, that death sentence that we have, what we rightly deserve, in God's sight, that death sentence has already happened. It happened in Jesus. His death becomes our death. His sacrifice becomes our sacrifice, and we share in all the benefits of that. And so Paul has already talked about that back in chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, just back one page where he said, you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. Um, Because of what Jesus has done, because he went to the cross and took our debt on himself, it's as if from God's perspective, we have died. The death sentence has already been paid. And so everything that we have done in the past that we're ashamed of can all be forgiven. That's what Paul is saying. If you're united to Christ, your past has all been forgiven. Second, your present, the Christian's present is changed if we're united to Christ. Verse 1, you have been raised with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. With Christ. Now, this is a bit tricky, so you're going to have to stay with me. I know it's late and you're probably tired, but let's put up the next slide. The New Testament, uh, maybe the next one, uh, the New Testament speaks of resurrection in three different ways. In three different ways. Uh, the New Testament oft, most often speaks of resurrection, when it speaks of resurrection, is speaking about the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. That's the most common way that the New Testament speaks of resurrection. Uh, he died, and he lived in real history, he died in real history, and in real history, Jesus rose from the dead, seen by f- over 500 witnesses. And we have a party to celebrate that every year. We call it Easter. Uh, but secondly, the New Testament also talks about a future resurrection for all those who trust in the Lord Jesus. We will receive a physical resurrected body when Jesus comes back again. But there is a third way that the New Testament uses this language of resurrection, and it speaks of a spiritual resurrection the moment someone puts their trust in Jesus. Again, Paul has already used this language. We've read it there in chapter 2, verse 13. You were dead. You were hopeless and helpless. You were relationally dead to God. Because, as Paul put it in chapter 1, you were alienated from him uh, because you were enemies in your minds towards God. But, but wonderfully, God has taken the initiative. He has sent his son to renew, restore that broken relationship. 
so that we could know God now and live with him forever. And he gives us his Holy Spirit to change us, to give us new life. And so essentially becoming a Christian is not just getting a new start in life. It's getting a new life to start. That's what's on offer here. And of course there's a close connection between these three different resurrections. Um, It's because Jesus rose physically from the dead in the past that we can have a new life spiritually now. And in a sense, if we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, that powerful work of God, which will give us a new body in the future, actually that power begins to break into our present and begins to change us now. Because you are united to Christ, if you've put your trust in Jesus, you have a new past, you have a new present, a new life, a new relationship, and you have a new future. You have a new future. Verse 4. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul uses this language of being hidden with Christ. It's this idea of kept in somewhere somewhere safe and secure. Um, I don't know where your safe, secure place is in your house under the bed. Maybe you have a safe, wherever that is. We are kept safe and secure because of Christ. And one day he will, what is hidden now, what is unseen now, our safety, will be revealed to all. Will be revealed to all when he comes again in glory. Uh, I think um, a hymn we commonly sing here, uh, Before the Throne of God Above, uh, by Charity Lees Bancroft. Uh, I think she sums it up beautifully in these lines. One with my Lord, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is safe with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Now often we don't, we don't feel like we're very safe, do we? We live in a world where it's dangerous. We live in a world where there's disease and decay and disappointment. And we feel very vulnerable and under threat, most of us, uh, most of the time. But what is hidden will be made public when one day Jesus returns in glory and we get to share in that glory. Uh, When we get to go to a, a world where all sickness and suffering and sadness and sorrow are removed forever and we find a safe place forever. We have a new past, we have a new present, and we have a new future because we are united to Christ. That is who we are. The most important thing, the most important thing about you. Now, how does this work? How does knowing that change you? How does knowing that change you? I was trying to think of an illustration for this. Uh, I got to meet a girl called Fiona while at Theological College over in England. She was a, a quintessential English girl. Uh, in all sorts of ways, uh, from the Cotswolds in England, um, uh, living in London, working in London. And when I got to know her, she met uh, a guy uh, called Jakku, and they fell very much in love. Uh, He was a typical South African Afrikaner, right? He's a big, blonde guy, uh, spoke Afrikaans and had the whole Afrikaans culture. Uh, But they started going out, things getting, getting quite serious, uh, and he popped the question 
And when he popped the question, she understood the significance of saying yes. If she said yes, he was only over on business. If she said yes, that would mean moving to South Africa. Up, up sticks new life out there. And so she, very much in love, decided to say yes. And the moment she said yes to Jackie, her whole mindset and outlook was absolutely transformed. He was now her focus, and she knew her future lay with him in another place. They were engaged for a while while she was in London and he was in Cape Town. Uh, But all her decisions were affected by that new reality for her. Uh, So when it came to asking herself the question, shall I redecorate my flat in London? The answer was, well, no, no, because I'm, I'm only passing through here. My future doesn't lie here. My future is with him in that place. I'm not going to invest that way now. Uh, so when it came to asking herself questions like, will I continue my largely vegetarian diet? Uh, it turns out the answer is no. Not if you're going to South Africa. I don't know South Africans I see here, at least, at least I know. But if you've ever been, you'll know that they seem to eat an extraordinary amount of beef and springbok and ostrich or whatever it is they eat. They barbecue braai a huge amount of meat every day. No point. No point in being a vegetarian out there. You get the idea? Because her focus was with him, because she knew her future was with him, that became the basis of every decision she made. And Paul is saying that it actually is something similar for a Christian. We haven't said yes to a new partner Uh, But we've said yes, if you're a Christian, to Jesus being your Savior and your Lord. And if you're united to him by faith, you can know that your future lies with him. And that should be the, make the, change every decision you make now. You should only be investing now in what will matter then. Because your future is secure your past has been dealt with and you have a, by faith a relationship now that will be a relationship of sight and touch later. Understanding your new identity, if you really get it and understand it, it will change your thinking and your motivation. Or as Paul puts it, you will set your mind on things above. It will change you. It will change you. First step then to be becoming a changed person, more like the Lord Jesus person, is that you need to understand your new identity. Secondly, and more briefly, you need to practice your new lifestyle. Practice your new lifestyle. In verses 5, where Paul spells that that, that new lifestyle out in verses 5 down to 11, but before we dive into those, you need to see the connection between verses 5 to 11 and verses 1 to 4. Verses 5 to 11 flow out of verses 1 to 4. Paul is not giving an alternative set of religious rules to the false teachers. Paul knows only too well that our hearts are so deceptive uh, and so hard uh, and sinful that actually rules are not going to change you. He's not giving you rules. You're meant to read verses 5 to 11 And not think, do this or else. 
you're meant to think, be who you already are. Be who you already are. That's what he's saying. Um, Paul knows, verse 23, that rules in and of themselves, self-discipline, just gritting your teeth and trying harder, that's going to be useless for restraining uh, sensual indulgence. That's not going to change you. Now, how does this work? How how do these verses work? Well, again, I struggle to get an illustration, but here's the best I could come up with. Um, I want you, in your mind's eye, to try to put yourself uh, in the shoes of uh, someone who is in France uh, during the German Nazi occupation about 75 years ago, let's say. Okay? Uh, And while you're in France, uh, you have a, a wireless radio and you're able to tune in every week to General de Gaulle who is in London, but transmitting a broadcast into France every week. And his broadcast consists of really effectively two things. Or the Allies are winning. Do not collaborate with the enemy. The Allies are winning. Do not collaborate with the enemy. Remember you are French. And you listen to that, and you find that really inspiring. And then in your town, you see some, one or two of the families that are doing business with the Nazis, that are making peace with the Nazis, that are just getting on with life with the Nazis. And things are going well for them. They're not, they're, they seem to be special favors, no harassment. Life seems to be going easier for them. And you're tempted. You're tempted to collaborate. You just know it would be easier. And then again, you hear the weekly broadcast and you're reminded by General de Gaulle that you are French, the Allies are winning, and he is coming back. And he is coming back to set up his righteous rule. Now, in a sense, that's what Paul is saying here in these verses. Do not collaborate with the culture around you. Don't do it. Don't do it. Remember who you are. You are a Christian, united to Christ, a citizen of heaven. Do not collaborate with the culture around you. Paul then focuses on two areas where we're most tempted often to collaborate with the culture around us. Two areas where it's really difficult. Uh, And in times where two areas where we think the temptation to give in uh, is almost irresistible. Uh, It's in the area of sexuality, and then secondly, in the area of speech. That's just two uh, focuses. And I take it that these aren't just problems for the the, uh, Colossian Christians. I take it these are two areas where we find it difficult today as well. And Paul uses language that is incredibly graphic, incredibly violent even. Just look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore... Whatever belongs to your sinful nature. Paul is saying, don't just regret your sin. Don't just dislike your sin. Don't just be annoyed with your sin. Put it to death. Put it to death. Do not collaborate with the enemy in these two areas. The first area is in the area of what I've called distorted sexuality. 
put to death distorted sexuality. Put to death, therefore, verse 5, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. The main focus there is in the whole area of sexual immorality. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago when we looked at Genesis 1 and 2, hopefully you remember that sex is God's idea. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful, good gift that God has given. But it's to be used in the right place the right place and God has designed it to work in the context of a committed lifelong marriage relationship between a man and a woman that is where God has designed sex to work and any any time someone uses sex outside that safe secure place of a marriage committed marriage relationship it's what Paul calls it here sexual immorality it's a very broad term it's actually the word porneia in Greek, it's the word from which we get the word porn, uh, and po- it's a very general term that means any kind of sexual activity outside the safety and security of a marriage relationship. And Paul is, and, and really the problem with sexual immorality uh, is number one, it will stain you, it will it will mark you, and it will be it will make you unacceptable before God. It will make you impure. It's not unforgivable, don't get, that, don't get me wrong, but it will make you impure before God. But here's the big problem with sexual immorality, is that it's lust. Lust. And lust is the polar opposite of love. What is love in the New Testament? Love is your, a self-giving for the good of another person. Lust is selfish taking for your own good. It's all about me, 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 and my selfish gratification. Uh, and if it means other people, I have to take from other people, then I'm willing to do it. It's something really ugly. And that's the problem with sexual immorality. It is selfish and it is ugly. Or, as Paul puts it, they are evil desires, as we selfishly want to take from other people. And Paul is saying, Do not collaborate with the culture like that. Don't get involved in that. Verse 6, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul is saying God hates that attitude. That attitude of me first. uh, That attitude uh, and that behavior that will enslave you. That will exploit other people and will displease God. Do not collaborate with the enemy in that way. Second, in this whole area of speech, destructive speech. Actually, before we move on, it's, it's worth being practical in the, that area of sexuality. What does that look like before we go on? What does that look like? Uh, well, what it looks like is not mentally undressing the other person in your office. What does that look like in practice? Not putting to death sexual immorality. Well, it involves not looking at pornography on your computer at home. Uh, What does putting to death sexual immorality look like? It means not crashing through the boundaries uh, that boyfriends and girlfriends have put up at the beginning of their relationship. Uh, And it means not indulging sinful sexual fantasies about someone else. Those things will twist you They will exploit other people and they will dishonor God. Do not collaborate. 
Second, as I said, Paul goes on. Second area in which we're not to collaborate is we're to put away destructive speech. Put away destructive speech. Verse 8, you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. If you go to the doctor and you get a general medical checkup, uh, something often doctors do, uh, Craig and keep me right, uh, is that they will check your tongue, put in the wee tongue, you know, the wee wooden tongue depressor. I think that's what it's technically called. So Google told me this week, uh, tongue depressor, because actually looking at your tongue can tell you quite a lot about your f- general physical health. Well, Paul is saying looking at your tongue can tell a lot about your spiritual health, actually. Um, so Paul is saying get rid then of all... Um, crude language, get rid of all your cruel slander uh, and gossip. Uh, Certainly get rid of all lies, which are often so often motivated by malice and anger. Get rid of those things. Why? For the good of the community. For the good of the community. Notice how this little section ends. It ends by talking about a diverse community because nothing is more destructive to the health and well-being of a local church community than a tongue, tongues gone rogue, where there is slander and lies and malicious speech about each other. That is destructive. And in fact, in a diverse community, it's all the more tempting, though, where we have a whole range of personalities and preferences, a whole range uh, of backgrounds and biases, a whole range uh, of people from diff- of different characters and cultures. How are we going to respond in that sort of environment where it's so easy to be offended? Uh, it's so easy to be slighted by other people. How are we going to respond? Paul says, do not respond with malicious speech, slander, gossip, telling of lies. Do not respond that way. In fact, get rid. It's radical language. Cut it out. Literally, cut it out. Get rid of that that language. It will destroy your community. And Paul says this because we, like they uh, in Colossae, are so tempted to be blasé about our sin. We're forgiven. Forgiven people. We can live whatever we want. Paul is saying that that sort of collaboration with the enemy in the area of sexuality or speech, is incompatible with being a Christian. It's incompatible uh, because it dishonors God, it hurts other people, and actually it's self-harm, damages you as you behave like that. You see, we're so tempted to be like, again, this is a dated reference, so you'll have to indulge me. Uh, This is, we're a bit like Gollum in Lord of the Rings. If you know the story, you know he is totally captivated by the one ring of power. Um, it, he, he's focused on it. It's all he can think about. It, but it ends up destroying his relationships and it ends up in, in the end being the death of him. I think we're tempted to be like that in our Christian lives. There's one little area where we want to hold on to that. That's our precious The one area where we're we're tired or stressed, that's the one thing we were tempted to give in on. Paul says, don't do it. Don't collaborate like that. It's dishonoring to God. It damages you. It hurts other people. But wonderfully, there is a promise 
in this section. Um, and unlike all the self-help books in Waterstones, unlike the teaching of the, the false teachers in, in the, the, these days, in the days of the Colossian Christians, um, unlike Scrooge and the Christmas Carol story, there is hope here for real, lasting, and effective change. And it's found in verses 9 and 10. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. This is what's called passive language. This is language. This is not stuff we do. This is stuff that is done to us. This is work, a description of what God is doing in us. And wonderfully, the promise here is if we fight and we refuse to collaborate and support the resistance, if I can push the image to breaking point, if we refuse to collaborate, keep fighting, the promise here is that God will work as we fight. Wonderfully, there's hope for real change. doesn't all depend on us, you see, at the end of the day. doesn't depend on me trying harder, grilling my teeth, whipping up my self-discipline. No, wonderfully, there is help for our fight. Help for our fight in the area of sexuality uh, and in the area of godly speech. And so wonderfully, where we finish in this little verse is we finish with real hope. Real hope. There is hope for lasting change. And it doesn't depend on me. It doesn't come from just getting a whole list of rules and resolutions that we're going to obey. But there's real hope as we are changed in our thinking, as we're changed in our thinking, as we rejoice at the forgiveness that Jesus has won for us, as we marvel at the acceptance God has for people like you and me, as we anticipate the wonderful future that lies before us, our priorities will slowly change. Our attitudes will slowly change. Paul's not saying it's going to be easy. He's not. In fact, that's why the language is so violent. It's going to be really tough. Two steps forward, or three steps forward, two steps back. Little bit by little bit, little bit by little bit, slowly but surely, God will change us as we fight so that we more and more look like act like, think like, feel like the Lord Jesus. Transformation, real transformation, wonderfully, is possible. Let me pray before I hand back to the musicians. Father, we want to thank you.